Good morning, my name is Hindel Grossman. I'm a divorce attorney and the host of Inside Divorce, a podcast series about topics relating to divorce. I'm sitting today with Heather Tuller, who is a business valuator. I'm gonna be talking about a variety of very interesting topics having to do with valuing businesses in the context of a divorce. I don't believe that divorce is horrible. What would be horrible is not having a way to get out of a situation that's untenable for the parties involved. Divorce is nothing more than a bridge to allow both parties to move along and do something else. Here's a heads up about the topics we're going to be talking about today. First, what is business valuation and why it's important in the context of a divorce? Next is the double dipping issue, which affects the valuation and looks at compensation and value in the relation of the two. The next we'll be talking about the Adams case. And we're gonna be talking about Heather's role as business valuator and the occasion for her to be jointly retained by both sides in a divorce. So let's get started. First, I'm gonna ask Heather to introduce herself and uh, to tell us a little about herself and we can get started on all our topics. Hi, Heather. Thank you, it's great to be here. It's a real pleasure. Um, I am with Valuation Research Corporation. I was with a firm, Delphi Valuation Advisors, and we merged in with VRC about a year and a half ago. I've been with uh, Delphi for about five years, I believe, leading up to that. And prior to that, had my own firm for a brief period of time after leaving McGladry's Boston practice. I spent 10 years before that in a firm that was a boutique firm that focused really on litigation consulting and economics, finance, and valuation. And what kind of a background does a business valuator need? A business valuator really needs to have a solid understanding of finance and how to apply it. Accounting is a good background as well. You'll find people that get into business appraisal from a finance background. You'll also find some that get there from an accounting background. I come from both places. I am a CPA. Yeah. I am also accredited in business valuation through the uh, AICPA. Okay. And I'm an accredited senior appraiser with the American Society of Appraisers. So you have, I, a lot of, you have a lot of designations after your name then. There, there are a few initials. I'm going to yeah. have to get one of those business cards that expands outwards <laughs> if I go for any more credentials. I think, I think we're done now. I think All it's right. quite enough. Well, you sound highly qualified for a podcast today. So we're going to move forward with the topics on business valuation. Have you ever served as a, an expert in business valuator? I have. Yeah. I have done that. I have served as a, uh, an appraiser in a few cases um, and served as an expert in a few cases. And it's an, it's an amazing experience. It, it keeps you on your toes, and it requires a great deal of thought and care and, and foresight. Um, what you're doing in that role is helping the courts and helping the attorneys and helping the parties decide on the value of what might be the biggest asset in the marital estate. So you have experience with valuing businesses in the context of a divorce. I do. Yeah. I do. I do a great deal of divorce work currently in shareholder disputes. I also do business appraisals for other purposes as well. What kind of purposes? I'll do a lot of gift and estate work where someone is gifting an interest in their business or if there's an estate where you need to come up with the value of the business for filing the estate yeah, taxes. I see. Um, I also do a lot of work for financial reporting. And that comes into play when a business acquires another business and they have to put all of the assets, whether they're tangible, things that you can touch, like equipment and uh, accounts receivable and cash, and the intangible assets, which are the more difficult to value ones on the books. Those are things like your customer relationships or 
In the case of a pharmaceutical company, it may be a technology that is on the path to uh, on the path to being developed. I see, protected uh, as intellectual property. For correct. Example. Yeah. Correct. Well, you, so you kind of stick your toes into a variety of different businesses then. I for do. For various purposes. I do. It's been a wonderful career. I've been doing a business appraisal for almost 20 years now. And before that, had a, a background in, in finance and other phases as well. So I've, I've had the opportunity to look at businesses from inside a small venture capital firm. I've had the opportunity to look at businesses as part of uh, context of, of litigation, and I've had the opportunity to look at many different family-owned businesses for gift and estate tax purposes and helping companies transfer wealth from one generation to the next. Very interesting. So in, in the setting of divorce, how would you describe a business valuation process? It's very interesting, because what happens is typically we're brought into the mix if there is a business that is usually kind of the uh, the livelihood for one of the spouses. And we often refer to that as the in-spouse. The in-spouse is the party who has direct access and knowledge regarding the business enterprise. Okay. And then there's the out-spouse. And, you know, back in the day, we might have said it's the husband versus the wife, but it rolls both ways today. Mm -hmm. You can have women who are the primary breadwinner and owner of a business and the men who are not. You can have cir circumstances and I've worked on one where both parties had businesses and both parties needed to understand what each of those businesses contributed to the marital estate. Yeah, um, you just use the word parties and I use it a lot too. It's a, one of those terms of art in the law and apparently in your business too, parties meeting the spouses in the divorce exactly. or two people in any kind of litigation. Exactly. But for and us today, it'll be the husband and the wife. Correct. Uh, correct. Or the spouses, the parties. All right. So. Um, Anything more you want to tell us about what valuation is in divorce, or should we move on to why it's important? Well, let's talk a little bit about what valuation is and how it, how it is crafted. Um, typically, there's three ways to value any asset. There's something called an asset approach, which in the context of a business, you might look at the balance sheet of that business, look at its assets, look at its liabilities, and come up with its net value. That's a very simple approach, and it can work if something has a lot of tangible assets on the books. But if something does not, if it's a service business or something that relies on more intangible things, technology or customer relationships, it's, it's not going to be as important. The second approach is what's called a market approach. And that's where you look out into data about how similar assets have transacted. You could look at the stock prices relative to things like revenue or earnings for publicly traded companies. Or you can pull transaction data from companies that were as similar as you can try to make them and see how they were transacted, how many dollars was paid for a company for each dollar of revenue or earnings. Is that kind of data publicly available to, to you, maybe for some sort of service? or? That we're talking about the data of other transactions and the value of other businesses that have been sold. The data is available. There are several sources that we can use to go forth and uh, make searches. Typically, you do have to pay a fee to access these databases, uh -huh. but the data is, is available. So if a private company is sold, is that typically data that's collected by some entity somewhere? Yes. Yeah? Yes, there are entities that collect that, and some of the data is reported through the financial statements of publicly traded companies that acquire other companies. Mm. Other data may be self-reported. 
Um, one of the issues with this market approach then is just how similar are these right. two companies? How much is one like the other with the understanding that you have a more limited sphere of view on this market data than you may have on your, your own target company. understand. So what's the third way? Well, the third way is probably the most common way to look at it, and it's what's called an income approach. And it is, um, like all valuation methods, believe it or not, it's a forward-looking way of coming up with the value of a business. And the concept is that the value of the business or any asset is the present value, the value in today's dollars, of the cash that is expected to come out of that business in the future. How far into the future? Typically, you assume that a business is alive indefinitely. It may be passed along and it, it may go into different hands, but a perpetual life is assumed for a business. Yeah, so you make a lot of projections. You can make a lot of projections. You can. <laughs> Was that a fair statement? That is a fair yeah. statement that you, you can make a lot of projections. Uh -huh. And there's always an inherent risk in whatever is forecast for a business. Um, the other possibility, rather than doing a discrete forecast, which is called a discounted cash flows valuation, yeah. you might forecast out for a number of years and then bring that value in a terminal value back to the current time. The other possibility is to do what's called a capitalization model, which is what's most frequently used for a business that is stable. So if you have a business that has been operating for a while and you look at its history of cash flows and they are somewhat stable and you you have an understanding that the future is going to be similar, then you can simply mathematically capitalize those earnings in perpetuity with a simple calculation. That's the cap rate expression. Exactly. That's the cap rate. And that deals with the risk mm -hmm. of, of the cash flows. I see. So. And you say when the cash flows are reasonably similar, I mean, they, obviously a company doesn't have exactly the same cash flow every year. No, they do not. So what's the range of uh, that would make it similar from year to year? A 10% swing, a 5% swing, more or less? You know, there's, there's no hard and fast rule for that. But... If you're looking at a company and they have been on a 20% year-over-year growth rate and you say, gosh, I think I'm just going to capitalize it where it is, I don't think that is a good way to look at it. If you have something that has been trending upward and trending upward, you probably wouldn't want to put the brakes on it. If you have something that has been swinging wildly, Maybe it has a longer revenue cycle. Maybe it's a type of business that doesn't have an annual revenue cycle. Maybe it has a longer term. Um, it, it, it's one of those things where you really need to take a hard look at the data and, and think it through. Also compare it back to the industry. See what's been going on in the market. Mm -hmm. If the market has been a little bit bumpy as well, that may be some level of explanation for what's going on with that particular company. Interesting. So we just talked about the three valuation methods, which are very interesting. We can drill a deeper into those three if we have time, but at the moment we're gonna move on to why it's important in a divorce to value businesses and assets. Well, often you'll have uh, a business that is the biggest asset in the marriage. You may have one of the spouses who has founded a company or inherited a company, that this is the primary asset of that marital estate. And it is providing a livelihood to the marital estate and to one of the spouses. And it may provide a livelihood to other parties as well in the family. It's not uncommon to have 
family members that are part of the business. You can have a situation where it's wholly owned by one person, or you can have it owned by multiple parties. But it's really and truly part of the marital estate. It is above and beyond the, the W-2 or the cash flow that it goes to the particular spouse. It's something separate, and it needs to be considered. Yeah. What kind of data do you need to collect? What kind of documents and financial records do you need to do like to collect or need to collect in order to do a business valuation? It's it's a pretty broad, pretty extensive, <laughs> extensive <laughs> list. Yeah. I, I, I apologize that I haven't completely memorized my data request list yeah. for you this morning. Um, I was hoping you didn't, really. It's a, it's a long list. It though. is a we, long we list, but we need to be able to look at the historical financial statements of the company in whatever format exists. We'll need to understand, we'll need to take a look at um, the tax returns, any kind of underlining, underlying corporate documents. That becomes really important if it's a partnership uh, where there may be specific clauses about how somebody enters and exits a partnership. That can be very crucial to take a look at. We also need to understand the industry in which the company operates. One of the things that we look at as well is what sort of earnings have come to the in-spouse from this business? What do the W-2s look like? What are the fringe benefits and perks? How does that work within the cash flows of the company as a whole? What kind of related entities are there? Is there a related entity that owns the real estate that the business is in? So you find yourself going through a process of uncovering layer upon layer mm. of information that you need to consider. I see. Do you often find that uh, the business um, provides certain personal benefits to the spouse that don't really show up on the books that clearly? Certain personal benefits. Well, dinners out, for dinners example. Dinners out. <laughs> things as, as things of that nature. call yeah. them discretionary. Okay. Discretionary items. Yes, and it can vary from one business to the next. Uh -huh. You can have some businesses that just don't do that at all, that the partners or the only person involved just really doesn't mm -hmm. have a lot flowing through the business. You have other businesses where there may be a lot of entertainment expense that goes through or a lot of other types of expenses that goes through the business. Uh -huh. and uh, Home repairs. Home repairs. Vacations. Yeah. Vacations. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And you often find that those uh, folks that do a lot of the work in investigating that, those financial forensics people are, are just amazing. There's a few of them that I like to work with and, and they're just amazing sleuths that go through and tease out these these various expenses. And this is an important thing to find out because if it's discretionary, it's really a cash flow that's part of the value of the business. And the other thing that's important is in working with the attorneys is how does that translate back into what kind of compensation is being considered for support and alimony. Yes, I see. Right, that's the relevance of that forensic work and getting good data. And getting good data. Yeah. And getting good data. Yeah. So in the context of doing a business valuation, who do you, who do you work with? Who's your client? Well, What's your role here? My role. Typically, the attorneys will hire me. Um, I can work for the in-spouse. I work for the outspouse, and on occasion I work as a joint retention where I sit in the middle in between the two. Um, the attorneys typically hire me. I have had some situations where the business owner or spouse directly retains me. 
uh, but typically it's the attorney. It's it's generally the way that I see, see things crafted. Okay. And when you're jointly retained, so that means that you're the only valuation person in, in the the, in the context of the divorce, who's valuing the business. Is Correct. Right? Both spouses have agreed to use you and agree that they will use the outcome of your work. Absolutely. That is, that is the value that you're putting on the business. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. And joint retention is it's an interesting thing to, to consider. If you're thinking about a business, and let's say we have a business that's, maybe it's a $5 million business, maybe it's a $10 million business, but in the context of the, the divorce, it takes time away from the owner's day-to-day -day life to work with an appraiser, to go through a site visit, to talk with that appraiser, to describe the business, to pull together the documents, to discuss the business. All of these things take a lot of time and effort. And if you're doing that for two different appraisers, and then having to kind of bridge the gap, if there is one, wouldn't that be shocking, a gap between two mm -hmm. business appraisers' yeah, values? It happens often, doesn't it? It does, mm -hmm. it does. So. There's a lot of time involved if you have two appraisers, if you have one on each side. And some folks have found that it's it's preferable to just hire one appraiser. Uh, one of the first off benefits is it's only one set of information to pull together, only one set of time and effort on the part of the business owner. Right. It's lower fees. You don't have two appraisals, you have one. Yeah. It may take that appraiser a little bit more time working with two sets of attorneys and clients, yeah. but it's, it's a little bit different way to go about it. Do you have a particular protocol of dealing with the two attorneys when you're jointly retained? I do. What is that? I do. Um, it can work very well, and it can be uncomfortable. I think one of the big important things for joint retention is, are the attorneys involved both firmly on board with the process of that they have both hired one appraiser, that everybody's on board that there's one appraiser in this game. And that's the only person that's going to be doing the appraisal. There's not some shadow appraiser off in the, behind a curtain somewhere doing something uh -huh. else. If you don't have that level of trust, that they believe that that appraiser truly is impartial, then it can be an uncomfortable situation and, and less fruitful. Mm -hmm. I also like to set ground rules. I like to have a, a conference call with both counsel before we even get started to talk about what is our process. How do you want us to communicate? If I'm going to make a phone call to party A, must I have party B on the phone or are you okay with me just speaking? If we're going to ask for information, who's going to be able to access that information? Everybody? or not. Yeah. So setting the ground rules is really important and also having counsel that likes joint retention or finds it a good fit for that specific divorce. Yeah. And, and I think the each Makes divorce sense. is different. It really is. You can have parties that still have some level of trust and if that's the case then you can get through it. Mm -hmm. If the trust is completely broken down and mm -hmm. everyone's at loggerheads, I don't think joint retention is necessarily going to be your best option. It probably is not going to save you any time or money. Yeah. So you've seen joint retention work and not work. I have. Yeah. I have seen it work and I have seen it not work. Yeah. And it really comes to the, the absolute kernel of it is where do the divorcing couples stand in terms of still having some level of trust yeah. that they can allow the process to happen. I see. So if they jointly retain you, then ultimately you, you review the documents, you do your analysis, you gather data, and you come up with a number effectively. 
and you write a report if if asked to do so. If asked to do so, yes. Yeah. So that would be my role and mm-hmm. communicate that role. And that's a, an interesting point is, yes, I come up with a number, but I've always thought of it more of not what is the value of the business, it's, it's why is that the value of the business. Uh-huh. So the role isn't just, by the way, thanks for hiring me. I really appreciate that you pay your bills on time. You're lovely people. It's here is what the value of the business is. And I believe this because, mm-hmm. and to take the time to walk people through, how did you get to that place? What were the stops along the way? What pointed you in that direction? And what is inherent in that in things like uh, what level of compensation is going through that? Um, that's really important if you're using one of these income approaches yeah. because you don't want to take that compensation piece and the cash flows from the business and have both of those. Compensation in, to the spouse. To the spouse. From the business. From the business. Yeah. You don't want to have uh, the compensation to the spouse from the business and the cash flow from the business for owning it getting commingled. Uh-huh. Uh, I think that's your double dipping situation that you want to try to avoid. All right. So let's talk about that in a second. Just want to comment on something really important you said about why. And I guess when you walk the spouses through the uh, answer, how you came up with your opinion on the value and you explain why, if there is a, well, if there's an error in a piece of data that you've been given, that might affect the opinion that you've come up with with the value because going through the why gives them a chance to weigh in on that piece of data that may have been... Yes. Viewed wrongly, or they, maybe they gave you an old number, or something was incorrect um, that they gave you, I imagine. Um, but also, it gives both sides a level, higher level of confidence in your process. Correct. When you go through answer, answering the question why. Absolutely. And I think especially for the outspouse. Because in some situations, the outspouse's only understanding of the business may be the lifestyle that comes out of that business. Right. And that kind of a coming to the table and seeing how things actually play out and seeing what risks are actually involved in the business, it can help It can help people move through understanding the whole process and what was really going on in the marital estate. Yeah, you make a really good point about educating the clients. It's important. All, it's, every it's step vital. of the way during the divorce, both in your work as a business evaluator and in my work and as a divorce attorney, really helping people understand the decisions they're making along the way is important. I, I agree. Yeah. It's it's funny. Some people have said, how come you do divorce work? It's so sad. Divorce is horrible. Well, I don't believe that divorce is horrible. What would be horrible is not having a way to get out of a situation that's untenable for the parties involved. Mm-hmm. Divorce is nothing more than a bridge to allow both parties to move along and do something else. Yeah. And I see my role as coming in and explaining something that may be completely arcane to the parties involved in a manner that lets them go off on their separate paths with as little disturbance as possible. Right, that's a great goal. We were talking, you mentioned double dipping a few minutes ago. I'd like to get back to that. It's a big concept in business valuation, at least from the perception of one side (laughs) sometimes. Can you describe what double dipping is, this, this issue? Well, my understanding of double dipping is if you are valuing a business, and let's say we have a business that has Um, It's a very simple business that year in, year out, the business makes a million dollars and the business has one expense and the expense is the um, salary of the owner and that is $300,000. 
So we have $700,000 of cash that's from the business after it pays the salary. And I'll take that $700,000 and I'll use that to come up with the value of the business by capitalizing it, say. And if I do that, I come up with a value of the business based on that $700,000. Now, at the same time, that $700,000 from the business that's above and beyond the $300,000 paycheck is going to the same guy. So in two different forms, in two different forms, exactly. One is compensation and one is net profit of the business. So if we take this net profit of the business and we roll this thing up into an asset called the business value, that is made up of that $700,000 piece. And if you then go over to this concept of what is the support being driven by and you use that $700,000 again, it's having to serve two masters. Mm -hmm. It's having to be a, a cash flow that is contributing to support as well as being a cash flow that contributes to the asset. They are one and the same thing. So, right, for support purposes, it's used for the, like an alimony calculation or a child support calculation. And in your world, it's used to value the business as an asset. So it's being used for two purposes. Right. That's the double dipping that's, argument. That's my understanding of the double dipping yeah. argument. And it is permitted in Massachusetts. It, right? it is. Yeah. And it can get very tricky and very difficult. And how do we calibrate? Because also in Massachusetts, that asset, once you carve the assets up, that's a done deal. That is done. That is, you know, as, as we'd say down south where I come from, that horse has left the barn. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so you can't go back and get it. Yeah. That's done. Yeah. And the support side of it and the alimony side is something that can be recalibrated if need be. But you need to be really careful in coming up with this asset number to try not to allow it to have this double dip flavor to it so it doesn't get counted in two different ways. Yeah, yeah. So I understand there's a very significant case, the Adams case, that's relevant to your world and valuation. Can you tell us how that impacts what you do? Yes, the Adams case, I think is one of the most interesting court cases, and I know I sound a bit nerdy at the moment talking about it, but it really nerd is. Away. A, I'm going to nerd away on this one. This is a fantastic case. Um, it's good reading as well. It's a bit of a pot boiler. Mm -hmm. um, the Adams, uh, Mr. Adams, uh, was a partner in a wealth management firm, a very well-known wealth management firm, and he did quite well, um, millions of dollars a year. And after a family holiday where he reconnected with a, a cousin, there, there was a divorce that became imminent, and one of the big disputed items in this divorce was his interest in this wealth management firm. And appraisers entered the, the fray, and they looked at the cash flows that this wealth management firm was able to generate, and they came up with a value of the firm, and they took his percentage interest, and they took that pie that was the wealth management firm and his piece of the pie and said, there it is. That's the value. And the judge basically said, I don't think so. I don't think so, because that's not how this world works. You're pretending, hypothetically, that somebody's going to come around and they're going to have a big pile of cash that's the value of this company and they're going to dole it out to all these partners and they're just going to walk away with the cash in their pockets and not stay and do the work. This is a service business. You have to stay put and do the work to make the money. There's lots of businesses like that. So a different construct was put in place. They looked at the cash that was 
being generated to Mr. Adams from this business and said, some of this is your reward for doing the work. This is what you get for doing the work of this process. But the other piece of it is what you get as a return because you own part of this business. So, so they took his cash flows and they bifurcated them. They split them in two. Then they looked at it and said, you're going to be involved in this business actively for a period of time. At the end of that period of time, you're going to have to leave this business. And there's a mechanism for that. They, they have a way to deal with people retiring in this business. This is how they do it. You hit a certain age and you retire, there is a stream that is different that gets paid out to you. Was there actually a written retirement plan for this wealth management? Company? I believe there was a written partnership agreement. Yeah. I don't have the exact details in my head yeah. right now. But there but was a plan. There was a plan. There was okay. a way to deal with this. So what the, they did was took a look at this stream that was supposed to happen during his active tenure. And then this additional payout time upon retirement and stepping away from the business and took those cash flows and came up with the present value. And it's fascinating because it, it deals with a concept that, that I find some appraisers are a bit loath to deal with. It's really easy to visualize, I'm going to value this whole thing and then ease, apply the percentage and pull that out. But that's not the way some assets work. Some uh -huh. assets don't work that way at all. Uh -huh. And this partnership interest didn't work that way at all. And the way it was considered was, let's take a look at these specific cash flows that are coming into the marriage, that are coming into this marital estate, and come up with a number that represents that value. So is it fair to say that after the judge's recommendation, the number was lower? The value was lower. I believe it was. Yeah. I believe it, it sounds was. like the new the different approach and formula made it made it lower. It, it but did. still I guess it shows some creativity in your industry too. It it was a very creative way to look at it. And it's interesting to see that applied in the context of uh, divorce, where a lot of times uh, you'll find folks that just wanna capitalize it, pretend that that's history and not forward looking apply a value and, and, and be done with the process. I think the Adams case puts us on our toes a little bit to say, understand the business. If this is a service type business, what is it really going to bring to the marital estate? Because at the end of the day, my job is not necessarily to value a business and then an ownership in it. My job as the appraiser is to value what is in the marital estate. And it may have very different shape and feel to it than something as simple as being able to apply a percentage to a whole. Well, you made something nerdy and potentially dry sound fascinating, frankly. <laughs> At Adam's case, it sounds like a very interesting and applicable and relevant um, piece of uh, legal work to really in incorporate into I know, the work you do. And it sounds like that that judge was quite creative and uh, it encourages valuators to be more creative in the way they look at businesses individually. I think so. Mm. And, and I think that's something that all of us in the uh, industry need to need to be aware of, especially here in Massachusetts. We are in a, a technology and entrepreneurial kind of climate. So we are going to run into more difficult to value things as we go forward and we have to do a divorce practice. Yeah. So we need to be aware of other ways of looking at things other than the cut and dry capitalize and take a slice. <laughs>
Well, it's been delightful having the, this uh, time to talk to you today, Heather, and I think um, we'll wrap up this podcast for today, but I hope to work with you in the future. And uh, you look lovely in red, by the way. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> I very much appreciate it. It was, it was a pleasure. Yes, Wes. This is Hindel Grossman at Inside Divorce, and uh, we've been talking to Heather Teller about business valuations. Thank you. If you'd like more information about the topics covered in our podcast, please contact us at Grossman & Associates. You'll find a competent and experienced team of compassionate, responsive, and innovative legal professionals. Email me at hindel at grossmanltd.com. My first name is spelled H-I-N-D-E-L-L. Or call us at 617-969-0069. Thank you for listening.